Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. We have another interview today because it was beyond my capabilities to answer some of your email questions, since, as you know, we're gathering money to get a drone for a unit in Ukraine, and those are like my guys, the ones I spent some time there. And a lot of you asked me, well, it's a DJI drone, an industrial drone, but still kind of a commercial grade just for companies. Is it safe? And why do they use these commercial drones? And uh, I asked, those guys and they told me that they would like hack it somehow to make it safer so that it wouldn't be like traced and i don't know anything about drones or like software i, I can fly a drone a small one and i can you know do some fixing and soldering on, on the wires but uh yeah by no means an expert on this thankfully i know a person who is an expert and he's a friend of our show please uh, comrades this is comrade sean from advent of computing podcast howdy how's everyone doing yeah, like Christoph says, my name's Sean. I host the Advent of Computing podcast that's about computer history. I try to focus on like connecting old tech to modern trends. As far as bona fides, I'm not just a podcaster. I've worked as a software developer for over a decade at this point, and I've written quite a bit about hacking. Um, so I think I can help answer a couple questions that you got here. You're being way too humble. I I think you're you're supremely qualified and to do all this and besides, well, you've done all the research. So first of all, um just really wanted to ask you what's in the drone's firmware? Because I have this DJI Mini 2. That's my little tiny drone, which I use to film like Soviet era kind of abandoned buildings and military bases, and it constantly demands that I update the firmware. What does the firmware on a drone actually does, and how is this used for tracing, and what's the difference between a commercial drone and a military drone in this sense? Yeah, so really the firmware is kind of the smarts that makes a drone work, right? That's the easiest way to categorize it, I guess. Onboard each drone, and it's really two parts because you have the offboard that has your controller and your cell phone plugged into that usually. And then onboard, you have the actual drone's computer. So that's not, it's not like a desktop computer, right? You don't have a mouse 
you're not logging in with a keyboard. It's something called an embedded system. So these are small, low power chips. Technically speaking, it's something like an ARM processor usually. So if you ever use like a Raspberry Pi, it's similar to that, where it's just a small system that can really do a couple of things. It can control the fans and rotors. It can control the gimbal on the camera if you have one. It can deal with transmitting and receiving data and, you know, actually listen to commands that get sent from your phone. There's a few other little nuances that we'll get into that especially have to do with tracking and how communications work. But when you're updating firmware, that's updating the actual software that's on that little computer. The reason that companies like DJI or whoever your manufacturer is want you to keep updating firmware, well, there's a lot of possibilities. One is actually like federal compliancy, which is kind of the boring side of software. I've had to write some awful federal compliant stuff before, but there's a pile of rules and regulations, especially depending on your jurisdiction. So like in the States, you're not allowed to fly drones near airports. You're not allowed to go over certain flight ceilings. Um, And those will vary by like in Latvia, I'm sure there's different rules. I'm sure the same thing. You can't fly a drone near airports and then there's our like military objects. And Mm -hmm. well, we have a whole like interactive map. Yeah. Kind of like the one that amateur, like, you know, small plane guys do. You have to like look at it each time before you fly. However, when we talk about this called drone information and you being a coder of firmware, I have two questions here because, well, I asked some people around about this so that I would be at least partially intelligent. And I had like like two ones which are kind of more general so we can get into drone specifics. And the first one was like, why are companies so secretive about firmware? Is the information really so rarefied that it makes sense to keep it as a trade secret? Or is this more as a result of a general culture of safety? And secondly, because this comes from a programmer, by the way, um, why is knowledge of firmware programming so rare? Is it especially difficult, like tedious, or is there a lack of good learning materials? This is kind of a more general thing. And I thought, you know, you could know this. Mm-hmm. The second one I, I can answer very easily. <laughs> firmware programming can be really complicated because it's very specific to the application. So writing firmware for a drone is going to be different from writing firmware for like a router, oh. um, for instance. It kind of takes a lot of very specialized knowledge and also documentation. When, when it comes down to programming, it's all about access to documentation. So if you don't have very good docs on the subject, you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) And a lot of times with firmware for embedded systems like drones or really any small electronics, the firmware is very specific and usually distributed by the company. So they'll have really locked down stuff. Um, For instance, back in the day when smart TVs first started coming out, I was working at a company that was trying to start doing firmware updates for a certain smart TV. And that ended up being this huge hassle because you had to get like these special docs from Samsung and you had to contact support specifically to be like, hey, email me the docs. I can't get these online. So you run into a lot of issues. And I don't know exactly if that's the same kind of deal with DJI, but doc sourcing and really niche application knowledge make firmware software hard to deal with. Uh, Talking specifically about DJI here, what's underlying this issue is that DJI is a Chinese company. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you that, you know, as I own their tiny little drone, the build quality is really good and it seems to be responsive and everything is like really fine. However, there's a lot of, as as China is friendly to Russia, well, friendly-ish, there's a lot of worries about whether or not, you know, if, if Ukrainian side uses DJI drones, Chinese might leak it to the Russians. 
which is why basically the Ukrainian side is kind of hacking them in the firmware thing. And I don't even understand what hacking firmware means. And how can you basically disable some tracking stuff? Because then I presume a lot of the functions of the drone don't like work. For example, I highly doubt that on hacked firmware, you can just push a button and make your drone return to where it was launched. I guess you have to do everything manually. How easy is to hack this thing? And like, what do people do? This is kind of the difference because I bet military drones in general have like less flashy functions than civilian drones. However, they can like shoot rockets. That's my knowledge. It's actually seems to be the other way around. So the military drones are actually very, very flashy. But because of, you know, state secrets, it's not like we have really good spec sheets um, but like the Bayraktar, for instance, that's been seeing a lot of use in Ukraine that has triple redundancy in most of its systems. And they can fly for like 27 hours or something um, compared to a commercial drone will fly for maybe an hour probably less. I know I've used a drone that has like a 20 minute flight time. So not quite as good as a Bayraktar. Um, Bayraktar is amazing. Yeah. And currently Latvia, we also have pulled in since, you know, if Lithuanians did it and Poles did it, then right now Latvians are also gathering money for Bayraktar. Although in the current state of war, to be honest, there are more efficient ways to spend money than another Bayraktar, by the way, at this point, because everyone's saying that Mm-hmm. Bayraktars were super useful when Russians were advancing with tank columns. Now they're moving to positional attacks, so it's weird. But the main thing that the drones are used, even the civilian ones, because there's a massive lack of these drones, to both sides, by the way. So on the Ukrainian side, they need those specific drones and they know what they need. Meanwhile, on the Russian side, the volunteers are sending like just DJI Mavic 2s and 3s to those uh, like Russian army guys. And I don't know if they do any any modifications with them. And as far as I know, currently those drones are being used for artillery spotting, like those civilian ones. Mm-hmm. Like you said, if, if this civilian drone like flies not for such a long time as a military drone, then are they really that useful? Because again, my guys told me to have this Mattress 300, which seems to be okay. I'm just wondering about the usefulness and why these civilian drones actually are important to the sides of this conflict. So from what I've been reading and footage I've seen, they're being used largely for like short range reconnaissance, right? So there's actually, it kind of spooked me out. There's these videos of, from a drone's perspective of a drone flying around, um, chasing after running Russian troops. And that, at least the posts that I've seen online are saying that that's being used for, you know, reconnaissance, figuring out where troop positions are nearby. It was kind of spooking me out because it reminded me of Christophs, have you ever played Half-Life 2? What kind of a silly question is that, comrade? <laughs> Just wondering. One smack with a crowbar. <laughs> My man. So, you know those spooky camera drones they have in all those levels? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that it was really seeing this footage of drones chasing around troops was really giving me a vibe of like being in City 17 and trying not to get picked up by camera drones. And it seems like, at least on a superficial level, that's one of the easiest uses for camera drones. Yeah, but now specifically about the hacking part, because as I understand, I don't know if Mattress 300 has batteries or combustion engine, but I read online that drones that operate on batteries like electricity are less useful because they can be like fried easier or something. Mm -hmm. Do we have 
some sort of EMP capabilities in our militaries in the world that can actually, you know, haywire a drone or something. And how does hacking help in this case? So, yes, it's actually a lot easier to fry a drone than using an EMP. What you do, and this also gets into the actual tracking that's going on that DJI does with this thing called Aeroscope. Um, so you can you can make a drone drop out of the sky by using a jammer on the frequencies that drones are controlled on. Specifically, it's 2.4 gigahertz and somewhere around five. So it's these very specific bands that are also the bands used for Wi-Fi. So there's readily available parts and know-how on how to do Wi-Fi jamming. So you can kind of use those same techniques. So you end up making a big antenna, which you can do with just some pipes or some bits of metal and some wire, and you broadcast a very powerful signal at around those ranges. And what that'll do is it interferes with your control from your controller to the drone. And so the drone doesn't have a signal, so they're either programmed to like hold, drop down, or go back to their homing point. You can't, I mean, if you had an EMP, you could probably like blast a drone out of the sky, but I think that would be a lot if that was being used in combat, there'd be a lot more news than drones falling out of the sky. I presume that some drones are just literally shot out of the sky, mm-hmm. at least commercial ones. That would also do it. Military drones probably fly higher. So the the real target for the hacking, though, what I'm assuming that your dudes are trying to get around is this thing I mentioned called Aeroscope. And that's how DJI tracks or it's not how dji specifically it's a product that dji offers for tracking drones which is a bit of a kind of spooky rabbit hole okay then if if you say spooky rabbit hole then you got me interested (laughs) aeroscope is basically a product that dji has that allows like can i can i install aeroscope and look at drones around my area single drones around my area looking for another drone (laughs) no so aeroscope boxes They're expensive. They're, I think they're not that bad. They're like upwards of $10,000 or $40,000, but they're these physical boxes that you buy that you then have to hook into these big omnidirectional antennas. So they're like cell tower size antennas. And DJI has said in statements that they only sell them to trusted actors, which, you know, maybe that's believable. The on-label use for these. Every, everyone is a trusted actor these days. Right. Trusted actors are sold in every uh, surplus army shop, obviously. <laughs> um, so the on-label use for these aeroscope boxes is for, like we were talking about earlier, there are policy restrictions on where you can fly drones. So the idea is a company or a military or a police department or an airport buys a couple of these aeroscope boxes and sets them up near a runway. Then if a drone is flying near that runway, you can track it and the proper authorities will get information about that drone. Specifically, they get where the drone is, its serial number. So each drone has, by law, a unique serial number. You also get its home location, where it took off from as a GPS coordinate, or possibly the GPS coordinate of the controller, if your controller has a GPS. Once again, on label, the above board use for that is, let's say you're flying a drone like over an airport and you're going to hit a plane. Well, the aeroscope near the port picks that up. They can call the cops and be like, oh, hey, Sean's flying a, a drone a little too close to these planes and 
here's where he is, police. Please go go fetch him for us. I ran into this trouble like the very first time I flew my tiny little drone, because on the DJI Fly app, they technically show you the red areas where you're not allowed to fly above a certain height and like areas which you can't fly into. However, they don't show all of them and because they don't update as frequently. So on my very first day when I was trying to fly it, Apparently, I didn't realize that we had a military base nearby. Oh, no. And uh, after I was finished flying, nice guys from the military police arrived, and I had to pay about a 100, 100 euro fine, which is really, really painful. You got scoped. No, the, the thing is, like, I was flying for a long time, and they said they couldn't actually trace me down that well. Interesting. It was weird, because it was, it, was it was in literally my backyard. Yeah. And I wasn't like doing anything extreme, but yeah, that, that's where I learned that I need to do an exam and pass a thing and register the drone and everything. It was a quite costly experience, but oh, that sucks. well, at least at least now I have things. But if you say GPS coordinates, yeah, I, I think that the hack does that it bypasses this. Mm-hmm. However, as far as I know, if your hack makes the drone not be traceable, does your drone still have like return to home function? It should. And now that that depends on how the hack. It's probably a firmware patch. So that's a payload of code that says. Put this at this location in the program, replace the old code with my new code. So you can really target very specific things, but it's you have to know exactly what the code's doing initially. I have another question. If if you could also do some soldering, could you change the frequencies that the drone operates on? Like, or do you need something completely different and weird for that? So that actually I was reading some some threads specifically about taking out antennas specifically for stopping aeroscope and that won't work because aeroscope signals there's a lot of problems with the system one is it operates on the same frequency band as your remote control so it's using the same antenna but the other big problem so your actual controls being sent to the drone in the camera feed that's encrypted it says in dji's docs and they say it publicly and it's been proven by like sniffing packets that that data stream's encrypted, but the aeroscope stream, which these drones are set to put out, I think every 600 milliseconds or something, it's like a pulse. That initially DJI said, yes, that is encrypted. We're not sending out our users' physical locations into the ether unencrypted, but it, it turns out, and DJI is now retracted their previous statements, that data is not encrypted. So in theory, Anyone that has one of these boxes can just sniff down that data. And even worse, since it's on Wi-Fi frequencies, you could build an antenna that could pull in that information yourself. And yeah, it it would be pretty bad for privacy for anyone who pilots a drone in general. Yes. But if if we're looking at a military situation, then that might not just end up with your privacy being... Slightly different implications there. Yeah. On a military sense, if you can spot where the pilot is, then you can just fire some nastiness upon this position. Mm-hmm. So how does this, what does a firmware do? Like, how do you, it, it kind of makes sure that it connects to all the chips and everything and all the antennas, and then you can like kind of disable some functions of the drone sending some signals to this catcher thing then? In general, yes, it's a little more complicated. So the firmware, you can just think of it like a program. So It's like any other software, but it's specifically tailored for flying the drone. So that has a small amount of the program will deal with 
your controller input. Some of it will deal with doing video encoding. Some of it deals with sending out the aeroscope signal. Some of it deals with spinning the blades the proper way. So to actually do a hack to, to patch over that and remove, say, the aeroscope code, you should be able to do that, but the firmware code won't be in a nice, easy-to-read format. It's not going to be like some nice code with comments. It's going to be... Wait, wait, wait. Are, are you telling me that firmware code does not have comment section? No. Well, it shouldn't. Um, <laughs> code without comments is like, even my basic, very, very basic programming skills just instantly start yelling about any code that does not have comments in it. Yeah, so the, the reason it doesn't have comments is companies don't give out like the source code to their firmware. It's the result of time and money. So instead, they pass it around as a compiled program. So you have a binary file, right? Um, can you read binary, man? Well, I understand what binary is, and I've, like, I, I know what that is. I know what machine code is. Precisely. Um, folk can't really read it <laughs> directly. Well, yeah. So what you end up having to do is this awful process called decompilation. Oh, wait. Where you try to go backwards from a binary to code. Oh. Oh, um, yeah, this sort of, okay, then <clears throat> it's hard to give an analogy. Do you have a good analogy for people who uh, probably maybe didn't understand this? It's a very, very complex process, basically. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to unbake a cake. Yes, I, would, I wanted to say, like, you have a baked cake and then you go backwards and try to produce a recipe for the cake. Precisely. It's like taking a cake and figuring out how much flour is in it specifically or more like when the flour was put in. If you're really skilled and you have the right tools, you can figure that out, but it's very difficult. It's not a hobby job for a single afternoon with a couple of beers. Let's just say that. No. Oh, no. <laughs> and luckily, there are some people that are really good at this kind of reverse engineering, but it's a very specialized and very difficult skill. I've heard legends of those people who could actually read machine code. I've run into some on online and they spook me. It's... It's beyond my grasp as a mere mortal. Every computer science institution has this one person who you think actually thinks in machine code. Uh, my friend Aritz, if anyone remembers him, he's uh, like the transhumanist guy and a, a neuroscientist and does a lot of machine learning stuff. He, he told me that he knows a person that can do that. But, the, but by definition, these people, they're not going to reveal their, their dark magic secrets to you that easily, at least. Precisely. It's... It's a very special skill. Some people, I've met people who program in machine code. And I, I guess for the uninitiated, that means they just type in numbers and the computer runs those numbers. I, I can't fathom how you could learn to do that even. That's an unintentionally esoteric programming language. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. 
Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Back to firmware hacking. What you have to do, you have to decompile the firmware since the company doesn't give you the code. So you then have to somehow use arcane knowledge to figure out what that chunk of code's doing. And then you can write your own patch, which just says, okay, I figured out that this slice of cake is where the aeroscope signal is being sent out. I want to replace it with my own slice. It's possible to do very fine modifications without losing any functionality that you want. It, it just takes a lot of work. And I'm sure there are people on the job that can handle it. I was trying to find specifically patches that get out, like get rid of aeroscope. And I haven't found, I found chatter about people trying to do it but I haven't seen anything posted publicly about how to do it. And I think partly that is because that might be a crime in certain jurisdictions um, just because of all the regulatory stuff involved. I am pretty sure that Ukrainian army does not really care that in some jurisdictions, them hacking a drone to make sure it doesn't reveal their positions to the opposing side is a crime. I I, kind of think that uh, DJI will also let that slip. Mm -hmm. Also, Mainly, I'm just saying that's why it's that kind of information isn't going to be easy to find online for us as novices. Yeah, but if these updates come in and, and another thing that I heard is that um, some of these drones are being sort of used in a way that they carry some sort of device that allows like oh, yeah. a drone, not, not just exploding things, but that these drones, basically you attach something to it. I don't know what the device is, but that basically allows you to remote hack other things on the ground like you fly a drone close to their communications and then you somehow through your other device that you've attached to the drone can like hack in and listen to their conversations or something Mm -hmm. how does that work well in general that's got to be some kind of jammer um so drones one of the nice parts about drones is you can strap stuff to them so i've seen some videos i haven't seen specifically videos of people putting hacking payloads but i have seen drones that are tricked out with racks to drop grenades and munitions that's a very low-hanging fruit i think it's very effective though since they are really maneuverable the smaller commercial um, ones but hacking equipment they're probably using something like a jammer or some kind of antenna setup since you can put any payload on that you want there's a lot of different instruments that people have built up for pulling in data from 
encrypted or non-encrypted sources. I know. So I, I've done a similar thing. It's called war driving. Okay. What, what's that then? <laughs> war driving is a fun afternoon, my man. <laughs> Please do explain because it sounds fun. But uh, Sean, I love your show, but I'm pretty sure that I have a, quite a lot of listeners who are from a military background and who probably don't know. They, they would associate war driving with, I don't know, using actual guns and driving a car or something so please please do explain the technical knowledge here yeah this is this is a non-violent activity war driving is a type of hacking where you set up a sensor pack so you get something like i had a rig for a while that had a gps and a bunch of wi-fi antennas plugged into a little computer you throw that in your car and you go around just driving or walking and you have software that looks for in the case when i do it it looks for Wi-Fi networks and it records information about Wi-Fi networks. So it gets like, oh, is this open? Are there packets going to this one? Is this something that I know is insecure? And so that's a way to plot out data and very covertly and in kind of a targeted way, try to just collect signal intelligence. So figuring out what kind of packets are flying in the air. So my guess would be that in Ukraine, what you're describing is something similar to war driving where they're taking a sensor pack plugged into a little computer. So probably not a GPS, but probably some antennas in the known bands that Russian troops are using for communications. And you just strap that to your drone and have it transmit data, or you can just pick your data up when the drone lands. Yeah. Another question, by the way, was, um, this is kind of a different situation because I know that officially Russian army uses these Orlan drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they mean Falcon, but Orlan is because Ariol, Ariol is Eagle. I don't. Orlan probably is Falcon. I'm I'm not that good at translating uh, various species names sometimes. But we've seen a lot of strikes from Bayraktars. Yeah, and I, I guess most of their weight and everything is like their fuel because Bayraktar obviously uses an internal combustion engine. That's how it, it can fly for so long, and they carry rockets. But those drone videos seem to be very very grainy. And then when you look at what Russia claims as these Orlan drones, their cameras also are like kind of unsharp and weird. And this is a question, like, isn't like military drones supposed to have really, really excellent cameras? Or or are they kind of like cloudy on purpose because that weight for a good camera or something is needed elsewhere? That's a really good question that I wish I had a good answer for. I can speculate wildly, though, if you're fine with that. Look, you are the expert here, and, and you can speculate wild. Look, <laughs> you know more about this than I do by miles. You are an expert. Please do speculate. All right. As an expert, you are supposed to speculate wildly. Allow me to speculate wildly, then. <laughs> My guess would be either... so. A military drone can't have bad cameras. That wouldn't make sense. They spend so much money on those. They spend so much of our tax money on those, right? Or everyone's tax money, I guess. I have one leading theory. Experts say they're probably not showing the public high-resolution footage, since I know I've tried to look up the specs on the instrument payloads for military drones and nada. That's not out there, since that's, that's security stuff. You're not supposed to let possible bad actors know anything if you can help it. So my guess is that they don't publicly release good aerial footage from their drones because that's that's intelligence stuff. That's important to know if we're an enemy. I, I think that also is the reason why, and if we go into a tiny tangent, that is why all the 
Pentagon's footage of, uh, they call them UAPs now. Yeah, the, the aliens. It's always like grainy and weird. I really, really hope it would be aliens, but at 99.99 period percent, it isn't aliens. I'm holding out hope, man. Which makes me sad, because I, I wish to believe. But also about the warfare stuff, and also about hacking. We heard a lot at the beginning of the war that there was a lot of cyber war going on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't understand what's, what's happening, because there are hacks constantly on both sides. And that some of them involves drones, some of them don't. But I, I think this is your field of expertise, because at one point there were posted even like lists of hacker groups, some of which declared support for Ukraine, some of which even declared support for Russia, some remain neutral. But in the background, at least in the beginning of the war, in the first couple of months, I heard about this massive hacking, counter-hacking, leaking information, digging into banks, attacking railroad stuff, all, all this stuff going on. Do you know anyone and, and anything about that stuff? Because I think that's kind of died down a bit at this point, but it used to be really, really active on February and March. Yeah, so I was following that a lot closer at the beginning of the conflict. The main goal with those kinds of attacks is to either disrupt infrastructure or get secure information. And usually, like that's the thing, is a lot of government agencies are supposed to have guidelines for how they structure their networks or what kind of software they use or how long their passwords are supposed to be. But, you know, we're all people. We're all lazy. Usually government functionaries can be the weakest link or in the case of infrastructure, some minimum wage employee can be a very weak link for network security. So I don't know the specifics right now, but look, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm a journalist who has had to acquire some information from some government officials. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you are correct on that one, because I, I don't know how to hack computers. I know how to ask the right questions to get info that I need from very lazy people. That's an important skill to have. So, yeah, like I was saying, usually when we're talking about a, a hack attack or a cyber attack or an incursion, it is some actor, some bad actor, I keep using that word, someone you don't want on your network trying to get into your network to get crucial information. So that could be something like troop movements or even something mundane like someone's personal email address or how to get in touch with someone that you don't want them to be in touch with. The infrastructure stuff, though, I think is more interesting because a lot of systems that you don't think are online might actually have connections to the internet. I know in the States, there have been multiple scandals where power plants have actually been connected to outside networks when they're not supposed to be, and that opens them up for cyber attacks from the outside. Um, Aretz, by the way, because he goes to these... I'm sorry that we can't have him in this conversation. He's probably in a very deep in the eve of night, but I spoke to him about this and he said that in one of their transhumanist meetings, there was a presentation where a guy just came up and said that, yeah, you can remotely hack people's heart pacifiers as well, apparently. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Which was scary. Which was really, really scary if you think about it. That's horrifying. Like that's that's the thing with security is there's always going to be a weak link. And if it's like, oh no, my computer got a virus, that's gonna that sucks. But if it's your pacemaker or finding a drone's location in a war zone, that's a whole different level of security law. People making the chips probably don't think about all the time. This whole mess with like drones and flying everywhere. I wonder, is it possible? Because my drone can only fly up to 500 meters, Mm -hmm. which is bizarre because by Latvian law, I cannot legally fly over 120 meters. Uh, That's about 360 feet, approximately, maybe 370, 380 or so. Give or take. I I, I have um, allegedly never exceeded this height in remote areas, of course. Of course not. Um, Yes. In, in like my Ludza countryside. But um, I wonder, but the drones also, I know how the drone operates because the higher it goes, the more wind resistance it has to overcome. Mm-hmm. And the little rotors on this little thing are super powerful, but you can't go up that high. But is it possible to remove this limitation or is it like hard? Well, then again, we're talking about firmware. Firmware is the stuff that is hardwired into a drone. Yes. Well, it's the stuff that's soft wired since it's software. I, I'm sorry, comrade. I'm, th- this is why this is why I invited you on the show to speak about this. You see, I'll try to straighten things out. Um, there are patches that I've seen that people use to remove flight ceilings, but then you start running into the other issue is how far your signal can reach. So, commercial drones use a Wi-Fi ish band, so two point four to five gigahertz. That was always interesting because I thought they would, you know, use something else rather than Wi-Fi. There's two reasons they use that. One is it's the FCC. And I'm sorry, U.S. regulatory agencies, their tendrils are everywhere. As per FCC guidelines, those two bands are free for personal use. So you don't have to get specialized FCC credentials to use those bands. So makes it more commercially viable. But the other reason is a lot of consumer drones actually use a Wi-Fi protocol, so the same stuff we use for routers, for doing communications between their controllers and the drone. So it saves, you know, it saves the manufacturer the task of making their own communication protocol. Sometimes, by the way, I wondered, and this is kind of a thing, if we want to find the GPS location of something, say the drone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... Even if it doesn't send the signal to the interceptor device, it still goes through satellites, you know, because GPS is satellite-based, theoretically. And I'm just throwing things out there. All right. Can you hack a satellite somehow? Can you, like, get in maybe the data straight from the satellite? Because that's a thing. Yeah. That, that's a thing that uh, the Russian side, like, more conspiratorial, Igor Girkin and the very ultra-nationalistic Russian friends, 
they claim that the United States is feeding satellite, uh, satellite data to Ukraine constantly, which I honestly hope is true. I wouldn't doubt that. But they also claim that uh, the reason Putin has basically prohibited IT specialists from leaving Russia, because IT guys were the first ones at the beginning of the war to basically flee everywhere they could because they can work remotely. Yeah, it's a perk of the job. And now Russia has a massive, massive, massive IT shortage. Like IT people shortage and those who are left are not the most competent ones. But basically there's a theory that they should use the ISS and their own GLONASS things to just hack into United States satellite GPS data. I'm making a face. <laughs> this sounds like total science fiction to me, obviously. But I, I would like some confirmation because it also seemed to me like very fictional that Russia could invade Ukraine, you know, so... Like in full, not just in East. Yeah, I mean, all cards are on the table. So it would be really hard to, not impossible, there are, I can't think of specifics, but I know I've heard of instances where satellites have been hacked or communications have been reestablished after they've been quote unquote shut down. It's not easy to do that. One of the big reasons that would make some issues for Russia hacking GPS satellites comes down to how their antennas work, I think. Or at least that would be if I was in the headspace of I'm, I'm going to hack a satellite. One of my first concerns would be their antennas. So oftentimes a satellite uses a directional antenna to actually deal with communications. And those, they point towards the ground. So if you were on the ISS or in you know, a space capsule and you're, you're on a mission to hack a satellite, the antennas aren't necessarily pointed at you while you're in space. So I don't know. <laughs> it's not like being physically close to a satellite unless you can like actually hop on it and jack in, which that that's very hard to do. Ah, comrade, if you remember, and I think in one of my episodes about the Soviet space race, yeah. the Soviet Union actually built a laser pistol to shoot down satellites from their space station. Oh, that's right. Well, they could do that then. I... You can rest your case. I still just imagine maybe Roscosmos somewhere has like a stash of these laser pistols, <laughs> which are like gas powered. And then the, then the poor cosmonaut can just go out and try to shoot it. That, I would love to see that. I'll, I mean, I, the poor cosmonaut probably wouldn't do that because um, according to my re most recent data, Russian cosmonauts who are in the ISS make about $1,100 per month. Really? I'm amazed that's not more. Yes. No. That's, that, that's, that's a huge amount of money for Russia. It seems like you should be, I don't know, I, I guess there's everywhere people doing like space work or working in the science. It should be getting a lot more, but... Scientists are underpaid everywhere. We can, we, and no matter your field, yeah. science can always be funded more. <laughs> I can agree with that. Whole different conversation. But like previously, this whole war thing, and besides drones and everything, because this war, because of the massive use of drones... And, and the on both sides, no less, and because we have those Bayraktar videos and everything, mm -hmm. and because of those cyber attacks, this war has proven that, you know, previously we had spoken about cyber attacks and hybrid war, now we have a war war. How do you think this will encourage the whole developmental thing of, of computing in general? Because, well, mm -hmm. we kind of have to look at that aspect. There will be some other security measures, and there's going to be, like, all wars... First World War provided us with a lot of inventions. Second World War provided us with penicillin and everything. And as this war uses a lot of 
cyber weapons. How will this change the world of computer science afterwards? Because for military technology, this war proves to be kind of a very sad and terrible, but testing grounds. And in a way, this is also testing grounds for a lot of software cyber attacks. You know, is there something positive to be gained from all of this? And I'm just grasping at straws here because otherwise it's all depressing to me, you know. I wish, man. Like the with all the the cyber aspect of this war, I'm very pessimistic about the global outcomes on that front. Um, my main fear there is there's a theory going around that has been for a while, and I I think it's a dumb name, but some people call it the balkanization of the internet. Um, I prefer to think of it as the end of the internet, but I guess it depends on how you look at it. But my main concern is that looking at the effectiveness of cyber warfare, that the internet becomes a battleground in a much more physical sense. So you know how Ukraine closed their border when the war started, or they curtailed movement across the border strongly. Yeah, of course. I'm concerned that that same approach will be taken in a very federally driven way towards the internet. We have seen shades of that with blocking certain websites in certain geolocations. But the idea of a war starts or a country takes an adversarial posture and the internet all of a sudden in America is no longer connected to the internet in anywhere else in the world, or the internet in the EU is shut off from the internet in the rest of the world. Well, in my, in Latvia currently, and like, I think in Lithuania as well, and some other countries, the Russian propaganda sites are blocked. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Which is okay, which is okay, because we have our own political issues. And there's a lot of people who just basically receive nothing but Putin's propaganda and media, and I can understand that. Mm -hmm. But technically, I have to break Latvian law while by using a VPN because if I couldn't access that information, I wouldn't be able to make my show, and no one's going to prosecute me for it because, well, by trade union or whatever. But it's kind of interesting that VPNs that used to be like I, I first used the VPN back then, we just called them proxies, and uh, I used that back in two thousand and seven. And no one knew what they were. And now every YouTube video has a VPN advertisement. Right. I, it's a scary portent. They all claim to provide safety to you. But uh, they should kind of put on a disclaimer that uh, it just basically, if you use a VPN, you replace the, your government with knowing what you serve through and what you do with the VPN company knowing what you do. Precisely. And if, if I've learned anything working in software and working for the feds for a spell. It's not to trust corporations or federal anything. But we have, what, what's really scary to me is the actual machinations for how EU countries versus like how the Russian Federation is handling blocking sites. So how it's being done in the EU, if I understand it correctly, is from a top-down approach where the government's going to ISPs and telling them on your infrastructure, block Yes. These Russian sites, right? Is, is that correct? Yes, that is so. And I'm actually gonna, I'm just gonna check which error it throws out if I go to one of those sites that is blocked in Latvia. Perfect. Yeah, because I'm really curious about specifically what kind of tech they're using to do that. I've switched to a VPN that changes my location to Latvia. It should be blocked here. Let's check Ria Novosti. That thing's definitely blocked in Latvia. Okay. 
I don't think it works here. Interesting. Because I'm in the States and I'm just, well, maybe if I turn Wi-Fi off on my phone and just use mobile data, then it will probably think that I'm in Latvia. They might be smart enough to use Geo. I don't know. Because, so there's a lot of different ways to do that. Sadly, no. That's actually interesting. The error is that uh, you're trying to access an unsecure server. (laughs) Just making it hard. I like to do some sports betting now and then. I'm a soccer fan, and when Latvian team plays or when my favorite West Ham play, I I just like to put like five bucks on on something. But the site that I use is a Latvian one, so I have to use a VPN here in the United States to access it, because if I... Oh yeah, because it's not legal in the States. What? It's not, uh, that kind of gambling isn't legal in America. Like online, online betting? I think it is. I know there's a bunch of different laws. There are, there's a lot of different laws that regulate gambling in the U.S. I don't know. I'm using my Latvian site. What, what happens there is that if I try to access it from another country, then the site itself says you're trying to access this page from a location that is where our site doesn't work because they're only bound by Latvian laws. However, if you try to access these blocked sites, which are the Russian propaganda sites, it just drops you a regular browser error message. You know, the one that is like 503 bad server or 404 page doesn't exist. But they show the one that says troubles connecting to the server or something like that sort. They don't openly state that the site is blocked. They state that they have like, uh, it's not a bad DNS address. And DNS address is basically the thing that translates your web page that you've written in to computer language and then it's an address thing. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it in regular language. That's accurate. DNS resolution resolves from a domain name like google.com to the computer that you're actually connecting to on the network. In this case, they just say uh, bad server couldn't connect, something like that. Interesting. So that, so then that is being blocked at the ISP level. They're probably turning off part of their DNS resolution or part of the actual packet jump they would get to that server by the way thank you this will be very useful to my Latvian listeners oh yeah of course that probably isn't at isp level because here on my i switched i turned on my vpn on my phone and switched it to latvia and then i even though i'm just here in the united states still i could access it Mm -hmm. and you said this is the top-down version of blocking what's the bottom-up version then yeah the bottom up i guess maybe top down's a bad way to talk about since that's really the only Way the other the other way, which is how Russia's handling it, is instead of telling ISPs, "Hey, you got to block this site," and the ISPs do it. The Russian Federation has I don't know if it's hardware or software, but they have something that they physically went and did to ISPs in I think 2019. I think that's the year that they passed. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of it. It's something in Russian, so I can't remember it. Everyone calls it Cheburnet. Uh, it, it comes from the Soviet children's cartoons. It was like Winnie the Pooh, but Russian. It was like Cheburashka, a weird animal thing with huge ears and crocodile gena. Yeah. If you look at my full logo, you know, with me sitting there in Eastern border with all the little things, they are in the bottom right corner. There's Cheburashka and a crocodile playing an accordion. So Cheburnet is kind of like how everyone in Russian internet calls their own like Russification and like Russian version of the great Chinese firewall. Interesting. Well, it's like that. It's, it's like the Great Chinese Firewall, where it's something put in place by the state in order for the state to enact control over internet service providers. So they're able to physically, it might be software, but the federal government in Russia can say, okay, we're flipping the switch and they can isolate 
their chunk of the internet from the outside internet. It's a very different approach. Vladimir Putin does not use internet. He doesn't even have a smartphone. That's smart. No. You see, he gets his information about what's happening on the internet about him in red packages, like red binders provided to him by secret services. He reads the internet in paper form, basically. I mean, hey, that, that's one way to do it. <laughs> like, devil's advocate, that could make you more secure, right? <sighs> well... It's a concerning approach for a world leader. Look, you're, you're a computer scientist, a programmer, and a podcaster, and I'm a journalist and a podcaster, and we're doing this on the internet. Yeah, we're very connected folk, to say the least. This is kind of the good side of the internet, and, and I'm also very fearful about this going away, because mm -hmm. in March, a person got arrested in Russia, and they were like arrested for an extremist case, and I used some of my contacts and did a bit of bribery. I helped them out because listening to the Eastern border was on their case as one of the proofs that they're extremists and that they're terrorists. Oh, man, I guess you're on a list. I'm on a list for a long time already, but apparently in Russia, if you listen to my show without a VPN, if you can somehow do that, because um, I'm not sure if you can. But uh, yeah, guys, please use a VPN. Just don't go to jail because you want to listen to this show. That also kind of is scary if you think about it. Yeah, that's some really horrifying police state stuff. Yeah, and I hope this doesn't doesn't end up there because the internet in general, and like even and we started this with drones and military action, but when I grew up I was born in nineteen eighty nine and I remember the first first phones in general. And I never thought I would be able to talk to people in the United States, much less visit this place. And I never thought we would go like this global. And now because of security actions and because of all these wars and everything i think the most important part is that in general as usual after all the crises all the governments tend to just kind of knock down our freedoms one notch and it would be really sad if this would go away well the internet can be such a force for good and like you were saying it would be sad and i think scary if we do lose this globalized network if it I don't know, maybe the internet is just a blip for humanity, but I, I think it would be a shame if it did end because of war, because we can't figure out how to handle worldwide information flow during times of crisis. Yeah, but another thing is that um, the Russian army does not rely on the internet, which is kind of their defense thing. But as far as... That is smart. That is smart, but they also just literally lack computers for that, because they were stolen. And money was sold. Yeah, that that's less smart. And uh, finally, because we've moved on to tangents, it's just that um, I maybe do not know the correct questions to ask about drones. But uh, the interesting part about all this situation is another aspect where computers and firmware comes in. Mm -hmm. Can you please tell us how these guided GPS missiles work? Like, because I mostly read Russian side because I've listened to Ukrainian side. I'm just sort of the intelligence agent for the West, where I sit and pro-Russian sources and then check their stuff and then inform everyone about them. But um, Russians are super worried about these Canadian missiles, Excalibur. It's a missile, basically, but it's tied to artillery. I don't know their technicalities, but they were super afraid of them because apparently they're extremely, extremely, extremely accurate and precise because they are guided by GPS stuff and like super precise kamikaze drones as well. Is this missile guidance system also kind of related to the same drone thing, or is it somehow totally different? My gut check is that it's different, and I'm, 
I'm not a guided missile expert by any stretch of the imagination, but usually GPS tracking specifically is a separate kind of setup. So that will have a different antenna that handles not communicating with satellites, but checking satellite downlink. So looking at data that's just being transmitted by satellites to get a location. So I think they're probably right to be afraid that they are better than untargeted munitions. But I don't know, I think it all comes down to the targets that are picked more than just having better accuracy. Uh, yeah, that's also a thing because I think in a lot of cases, and this is a bit of a sad thing because today I got reports that another Russian missile strike hit residential district near Kharkiv. But this was a bit extra tragic because apparently uh, the Russians hit a nursing home for deaf people who couldn't even hear the air raid siren. Oh, man. But if you think about it, it's even stupid from the military perspective because you're wasting precious ammo to hit non-military targets. Yeah, that kind of thing. Well, with that kind of stuff, you have to wonder what the, the larger tactic is because maybe there's some more horrible machinations than just destroying military targets. I honestly don't know because at this point, you'll say about bad actors. Well, there's also these rational agent things. And uh, at some point, you know, I, I don't think that we can treat Putin as a fully, completely rational agent anymore. Yeah. But yeah, this is a depressive territory, which I'm going to cover in my next news episode. But, um, well, thanks to you, we have had our cyber warfare questions answered. Well, good. Hope I can have, or I hope I gave some satisfying resolutions. There were some because apparently hacking drones is hard and wow. I really have to give a toast to all those, all those crazy people at their keyboards doing some truly dark magic, such as deconstructing binary to code and doing dark wizardry not letting the blue smoke out and uh, <laughs> yeah the the guys who are doing really hard work to make all this happen but before we leave please sean um i know you have a lot of episodes in your show and i know my favorites of them but if you would recommend a single episode to just be a sample of your show for my audience to listen to which one would that be oh that's a hard question to answer my I always say that my favorite episode is the one that I'm producing next because I feel like with podcasting, you're constantly improving, or at least that's the goal. That is the goal, TM. Yes. <laughs> Big trademark. <laughs> I think if you want to get an idea for my style, I did a series on NLS, the online system, earlier this year, which covers really early hypertext. And that's kind of one of my big specialized research areas. That's two episodes, so it's a nice big chunk of me talking about computer history. So I'd recommend checking that out if you want a very emblematic series from Advent of Computing. And, and to all of you who are kind of afraid that that might be a bit dry or that you're not interested, I give a personal massive recommendation to Advent of Computing because, wow, first of all, Sean's podcasting voice is much better than mine. <laughs> That's a opinion not shared by everyone, but I'll take the compliment. My my favorite episode is the one about, uh, I think it was Zork, the game. Oh, yeah. And how does this game actually matter to computing history? I made my episode with my friend Aretz on Soviet history of computing uh, because I was inspired by Sean. And that was amazing. Oh, thanks. 
seriously. And well, I, I thought to give you some sort of response there. And he's also made an episode on fluid computing, which is interesting, which is also a weird Soviet thing I didn't even know existed. So, hey, please do check out Advent of Computing. And if we will have some sort of cyber warfare news about anything that we will need answers for, yeah, we're, we're going to call up Sean. So to all of you out there, always glad to help. Uh, <laughs> thank you again. Drones are complicated, programming is complicated, and uh, really honored to have you on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kristaps. And to all of you out there, до свидания, товарищи. And remember, happiness is mandatory. And I guess be boop at the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs>